You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, light machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There's all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds pass right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Welcome back to another episode of The Spear. My guest on this episode is Lieutenant Colonel Mike Murphy of the United States Air Force. Uh, Colonel Murphy, thanks so much for, for joining The Spear. Hey, thanks for having me, John. So I, I guess to kind of begin, I'd like to ask you a couple of questions about your background. Um, can you kind of describe what brought you into the Air Force when you started your career? Yeah, I you know, I, I always kind of wanted to, to fly airplanes. Um, my uh, my father uh, taught me how to fly, and you know initially it was kind of interesting. My my dad was uh, actually a career army officer, and um, uh, surprisingly enough, uh, he he was actually inducted into the uh, Ranger Hall of Fame in 2012. So he had a, a natural special operations background, and would always tell me stories. But but interestingly enough, when uh, when he was teaching me to fly, you know, he was always kind of pushing me towards the airlines, you know, and. You know, I just thought for a young guy to be flying in the airlines, at least at, at, at the age that uh, I started making career decisions, I just thought that, man, uh, there's got to be something a little bit more exciting out there. So, <laughs> uh, you know, I uh, I went to Embry-Riddle and, and started kind of doing the commercial pilot thing and, and quickly realized that, you know, I was, you know, probably interested in something maybe a little bit more exciting. So I uh, decided to join the Air Force uh, off the street after graduating uh, Embry Riddle and doing commercial uh, um, flying, and of course, you know, as I uh, uh, joined the Air Force, um, you know, going through pilot training, the, the decision point came up. You know, hey, what 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 do you want to do? Um, what airplane do you want to fly as a pilot? Again, going back to my dad's um, experiences and all the stories he would tell me uh, as, as an army ranger, it, the, the natural proclivity was to, to go into the special operations. So, um, when I was coming out of uh, Naval air station, Corpus Christi, we, we actually did, um, air force training at a Navy base, which is um, probably a whole nother story altogether. But, um, you know, towards the end of that, I knew I wanted to do special operations, but I didn't really know what, what airframe, you know, do, do I want to do a, you know, MC-130 that, that does uh, specialized mobility and uh, infill, exfill work? Um, or do I want to, you know, maybe take a look at, uh, you know, close air support in the AC-130? So spent a lot of time, talked to dad about that. And again, he, he uh, you know, peppered me with some pretty interesting stories and made the decision to uh, to uh, uh, track into the uh, AC-130 world. 
And can you kind of describe, so you're the commander of the 16th Special Operations Squadron. Can you kind of describe, is special operations aviation differentiated from, um, you know, traditional or conventional uh, fixed wing aviation by aircraft or by mission or by a combination of both? Yeah, I I think it's definitely both. So, you know, we, uh, in, in, in the 16th, you know, we fly the AC-130 Whiskey, um, which is, a, again, a variant of the, the AC-130 gunship. Um, you know, we, we follow all the, the close air uh, support uh, procedures that, that are in all the joint publications. So uh, joint publication 3093, um, there's a, a, an ALSA pub called the J-Fire. It's all the same uh, procedures um, for close air support that, that perhaps uh, an F-16 pilot um, would, would follow. I think that the key differential uh, between us and, and maybe another cast platform is, is frankly the habitual relationships. And so through the course of a year, when, when we go on exercises, traditionally those exercises are aligned around um, our, our special operations components that, that uh, their expertise is, is on the ground. And so through those habitual relationships, we, we um, develop a degree of familiarity with, uh, with their small team tactics all the way up to the battalion level. Um, for uh, for some other mission sets, but um, I think what really defines us is those relationships. Now, sure, there are there are aspects of the airplane um, that are are unique to special operations, um, but I think it it begins with the relationships, which which obviously drive the tactical nature of the airplane. So, so you your the first aircraft that you did fly was the AC one thirty. That, that was the first um, operational airplane I flew, you know, obviously flew uh, trainer airplanes um, in, uh, in, in, in pilot training, of course. And then, you know, having been a civilian pilot for, for many years, uh, flew uh, all sorts of uh, super interesting airplanes. But, but my first operational airplane was, was actually the, the AC-130H um, uh, Spectre gunship, which uh, actually harkened back to, to Vietnam. And then when I came back to the unit uh, in a leadership capacity, I had the fortunate uh, opportunity to fly the AC-130 Whiskey, which uh, there, there's, there, you know, there, there's certainly AC-130s, but not all AC-130s are the same. Um, and so the, the Whiskey uh, has something called the Precision Strike Package, which, you know, in the old age, um, which I got uh, very familiar with and, and come to love quite a bit. Uh, the armament on the airplane was was a 105 cannon and a 40 mil 40 millimeter Bofors, um, and that was it. And, that, and that's all we had for offensive uh, firepower. Um, on on the whiskey, uh, we we have a 30 millimeter Bushmaster uh, cannon. Uh, we still have the same 105, uh, but we've got a variety of precision guided munitions. Um, everything from a, um, a Griffin uh, air to ground uh, missile. Uh, all the way through uh, to a GBU-39 uh, small diameter uh, bomb, uh, which is a 250-pound bomb. So the the lethality with the whiskey is is, is certainly uh, a, a lot more so than than what I experienced with the H. Okay, so the so it's it, I mean the the 
the this sort of platform that it's all built on is the C130, obviously. And I have no idea if this is actually true, but my sense is that the C130 almost feels like kind of a blank canvas and you can do a lot of different things with it because you've got kind of standard versions that are, you know, great for moving cargo. Um, you've got electronic warfare versions. You've obviously got the gunship versions. I mean, it just does a ton of different things. Is that is that the case? Is it one of the most sort of versatile main sort of systems? Yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. You hit the nail on the head. Um, you know, I mean, it, we, we've done everything with the C-130. We as a joint force, uh, everything from, you know, launching it off aircraft carriers um, to, uh, to something new that ASOC uh, has just done. And I'm, I'm really interested in and uh, I'm afraid that, uh, you know, my time of useful consciousness, you know, my ability to contribute uh, creativity uh, to, to, to the process is starting to wane. But one of the more recent things that we've done uh, within AFSOC is test out our ability to to turn it really into a giant bomb truck. And so what you would do uh, is you would you would take a series of munitions that are pallet loaded uh, onto the airplane. And, uh, you know, those munitions uh, are obviously a little bit larger than the ones we carry now. And so as a result, they have an increased standoff uh, range. And, um, you know, you can uh, certainly take a look at uh, some of the munitions that are in development now, but the point I'm trying to make here with, with all this discussion is that, you know, now we are launching munitions out the back of the airplane, which isn't necessarily new, but the type of munitions are, those are new and, and they help us um, provide a, a concept called standoff uh, against some of the newer threat systems, especially when, when you look at the, the threat systems out there for uh, some of our, uh, our adversaries, you know, some of the radars reach out to, you know, several hundred miles. And so, uh, as does the, the surface-to-air system. So we've got to develop a, a, um, a degree of lethality that, that, that can counter that. And, and AFSOC is, is obviously leading the charge for that in, in conjunction with a, a variety of other labs. So to, to kind of put a bow on, on the discussion, again, we've, we've done everything from, you know, carry people uh, on the airplane to, to carry lasers on the airplane to now uh, we're, we're basically turning them into bomb trucks, which we we basically launch munitions um, at, at an increased standoff range. And, and I think really the next step in, in the C-130 legacy of its versatility is, you know, if, if we could take a UAS system, uh, there's a DARPA program called Gremlins. If we could take a UAS system, launch it off the airplane, uh, give it either a kinetic or non-kinetic payload, um, and then it goes out, you know, several hundred miles, does either kinetic or non-kinetic things. And then the beauty of all this would be you recover it back onto the C-130. Um, I think that would probably complete the circuit of versatility for the C-130. Yeah. You know, you know, this is, this is a spear and, and you're going to share, um, you know, one particular story that we're going to talk about and, and I want to get into that and, which is unfortunate because I could probably talk to you about, about this aircraft. I'm just fascinated by, it. you know, the very first time that I, uh, my first deployment, I flew into, uh, flew into Iraq on a C-130. We've got, you know, a lot of listeners who are airborne qualified who have jumped out of them. I remember being on the ground the first time that I saw the ground effects of close air support from, uh, from a specter. And just last week, I was reading an article about what you were just talking about, about these gremlin drones that can be launched and recovered in air uh, from this aircraft. So I am fascinated on it or by it, but we uh, we are going to get into the story that you're going to share. Um, to kind of transition to that, uh, can you can you describe is, you know, is special operations aviation over the past, you know, since 2001 and 2003, since the invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan, have they been generally pretty highly deployable? Yeah, I think that uh, that is a bit. Excuse me, that's a bit of an understatement. Yeah, my yeah, me myself, I've I've got uh, 
in total about uh, 14 deployments. Now, granted, those deployments aren't aren't the, tra the traditional um, Air Force deployments um, that vary anywhere between uh, four to six and maybe even uh, longer uh, months. Um, you know, we, we averaged, um, uh, due to our, our, our steady state deployment uh, presence, Within the 16th, you know, we averaged uh, anywhere from uh, from 60 to about 120 days in our deployment length. But but yes, I mean, suffice it to say, uh, you know, we we have been uh, uh, deployed uh, quite a bit since, uh, frankly, 2001. Okay, and so you're gonna you're gonna tell a story from uh, deployment to Afghanistan in 2007. Um, how many how many times had you deployed before that? You know, I think that was my that was my third deployment um, uh, within the 16th SOS. Obviously, my third deployment overall. Um, but at the time, I was I was actually I was a co-pilot, um, and I was uh, on a pretty amazing career with some uh, pretty amazing people. Um, and and in 2007 was really interesting because the 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 focus of the joint force was was really on on Iraq um, after the 2003 invasion and. And the counterinsurgency efforts uh, inherent to Iraq um, doesn't necessarily mean that, that that people forgot about Afghanistan, but from a resource standpoint, you know, we we didn't have um, as many uh, uh, both ground uh, and, and air components supporting um, uh, Afghanistan as we did Iraq, and sure. so. I think uh, a lot of the violent extremist organizations um, associated with Afghanistan at the time had had likely seen that and, and sensed that. Um, and so 2007 actually represented, you know, sure, it was about six years after the initial invasion, but 2007 represented a, a, a pretty um, intense uh, season of fighting. I was there for the uh, uh, what, what the Taliban would often call the, the, the summer, the spring offensive and the summer fighting season. You know, un under the auspice that, uh, or under the conditions that, that that winter fighting, especially north of the Hindu Kush, was was pretty much um, uh, not possible. I think recently we found that to not be the case, but but nevertheless, I was in 2007 as a co-pilot, um, and, uh, and and experienced a, a, a pretty intense um, a series of flights. How big is a crew on a on, on a Spectre? Right. So, and on, on the H, uh, we had 14 folks on the airplane. Um, oh, wow. and yeah, that, that was, uh, uh, that certainly had its benefits. Um, we were able to kind of through all, all that manpower, we were able to take some pretty complex scenarios on the ground and, uh, and we were able to, to kind of, uh, for lack of better terms, make sausage on the airplane and, and turn that into a, a danger close fire mission. I think, you know, when you consider that that airplane is um, coming up on, at the time, it was coming up on 40 years old, that was probably a function of technology as well. Now on the, the whiskey, we've, we've got significantly less um, crew members on, on the whiskey. We've got eight. In fact, um, on the J model, we're, we're actually looking at the new AC-130J that the command is looking at, at potentially uh, lowering that number even further. And again, that's that's a function of technology and, um, and, and the, uh, the benefits uh, to, to offset some more uh, uh, labor-intensive processes, but nevertheless, at the time we had we had 14 folks uh, on the airplane. Okay, and and where in Afghanistan were you based? Uh, we were based in in, uh, in in one of the larger bases up uh, in the north uh, near Kabul. Okay, um, and so typically, if you know if your if your mission is um, 
primarily close air support, um, support to, to ground combat forces. Does that mean that you, are you kind of up in the air flying in a, in a box waiting for a call or are you on the ground waiting to be launched? Right. That, you know, great question. And, um, that question, uh, uh, was a bit of a, a decision process for every mission commander, every deployed squadron commander, um, uh, frankly, in 2007 and beyond. You know, there's only so many hours that, that we can fly um, as air crew before concepts like fatigue and complacency um, start to set in uh, some human factors that can, uh, especially when you talk about employing munitions, that can result in uh, some pretty unfortunate consequences. So, um we, we have a cap on the number of hours that we can fly um, in, a, in a given time. And so um, it's 150 hours for, for, uh, for three months. And so we're, we're by virtue of hours, we're, we're a resource limited um, organization. And so during that time at the, at the height of the, the spring offensive from the Taliban, we had to kind of pick and choose um, uh, when we would support and when we want it. Um, at that time, especially in the, the, the Northeast part of Afghanistan, um, uh, numerous troops and contacts uh, would would evolve uh, through the course of of the day and the night, for that matter, um, on some of the more conventional forces that were uh, holding terrain up there. And um, I would tell you, it, it was it was somewhat frustrating to, to to sit on the ground and and hear about these troops and contact um, uh, events occur and not being able to support them again because of our habitual relationship and our tie to special operations. You know, we we. we being a low uh, density asset, we, we certainly want to make ourselves available to, to uh, special operations units. Um, and so what we would do to really answer your question, um, but um, set up a whole bunch of context here is what we would do is we would uh, sit alert and we could usually get off the ground in about 35 minutes, um, sometimes as low as about 30 minutes to uh, you know, either respond to a troops in contact or, or respond to time-sensitive uh, uh, targets. But we, we unfortunately could not, um, as much as we probably wanted to, uh, we just didn't have the resources, the, the people to, to sit what a lot of people call airborne alert. Sure, okay. So, so let's let's talk about this uh, this particular story that you said you'd be willing to share uh, today about uh, what, what was this springtime, summertime in 2007? Yep, it was. Uh, I believe it was May in, in 2007. And I understand you essentially got the call and said, "There's some some guys on the ground that needed help." Is that about right? Yeah. So we were um, again sitting that ground alert, and uh, the mission commander at the time, um, uh, ironically enough, his son is is uh, is in the unit uh, now, um, oh, wow. which is uh, which is pretty cool. Um, but the mission commander at the time uh, had again, through those habitual relationships, established a, a really good rapport with, with our ground liaison officers. And uh, he was able, through those relationships, to establish, you know, hey, you know, uh, is, this, is this call for support? Um, you know, how, how serious is this, right? Um, again, with the understanding that, that we only have so many hours that, that we can fly and support. And uh, this particular mission, uh, he, he had a the mission commander, our, our, our uh, mission commander at the time, um, had a very cool and calm demeanor about him. But in this particular case, I remember him coming up to the ops section um, and uh, he had a, a pretty quick pace about him. And I could tell something was, um, you know, as young as I was at the time, I could tell something was 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 up. 
And, uh, and he said, you know, Hey, I, I need you guys off the ground. Here's a call sign, uh, uh, frequency and, and location. And you just need to check in with them and, and, uh, see what's going on. And that's enough information for you to launch. Yeah. Um, it is, uh, that, that's a technique that, uh, we would prefer not to employ all the time. Um, but, uh, in dire, uh, circumstances, this particular one, uh, uh due to the uh, troops and contact nature what was going on that 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 is absolutely uh uh, all we need to to just start moving in the direction and and then again you know reference the sausage making analogy i i I threw out earlier we could we could start making that sausage when we show up overhead okay so you get that information uh you said that you can typically get off the ground in even 30 35 minutes um and then and then and then what happens in this particular case uh you know we, we we took off um we uh, we emitted a, a, a key element of um, of, of the air, getting an airplane basically ready to provide close air support, which is what we call a tweak, um, what some other people call test fires, where, where we basically, um, for a lack of better terms, we cite in the guns. There's obviously a lot more to than just that, but um, but we cite in the guns. We we decided to omit that step um, again because of what was going on, and we would mitigate you know that the risk of quote unquote, unsighted guns, we mitigate that through the, uh, the careful employment of the fire mission. Um, so we, we decided to just head straight to, uh, to the valley that, that this, uh, this ODA was uh, Operational Detachment Alpha that, uh, that was um, pinned down at. Ironically enough, uh, it was in a, a valley adjacent to the, to the base that we were at. Um, you know, you'd figure that um, the, the terrain, uh, within about 15 miles of a major base, uh, would be a secure terrain, but, but, uh, obviously not. Uh, so we showed up overhead, to, uh, a three vehicle, uh, a convoy and, uh, they had a can pair. I, can of- I ask how, how long does it take you to, I mean, from the time that you take off, it's only 15 miles and aircraft is, you know, is fairly quick. Um, but do you have to also get to a certain altitude? I mean, how long does it take you to get then on station? Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, especially the age, um, uh, gunship was, uh, was quite heavy. And so, you know, the, the airplane kind of crawled its way into the air. And so, um, I think from takeoff to us showing up overhead, despite it being, um, despite being 15 miles away, um, you know, with the mountainous terrain that surrounded the base that we were at, uh, we, we had to climb up to, in this case, um, 16,000 feet. Oh, wow. And so, um, you know, that, that was at least 16 minutes of climb that we had to do. And then, uh, while we're flying, it's, it, you know, in the climb, it's only three miles a minute. So, you know, it, it took us, uh, you know, 35 minutes to launch and then, uh, probably about 20 minutes in total, uh, to show up overhead, but, but still, nevertheless, I think, um, from the kickoff of the troops in contact, uh, to, uh, to showing up 55 minutes, uh, later, um, you know, that, that, that is uh, probably not a uh, at least for, for a gunship standard, uh, probably not a, a bad timeline. Yeah. And, and so as soon as you launch, are you in direct contact with the, uh, the, the guys on the ground, the ODA? Yeah, I, I wish, um, Afghanistan, especially then, uh, provided a series of challenges that, um, due to mountainous terrain, it was, it was hard to establish line of sight. Um, you know, we have beyond line of sight, uh, capabilities that are, that are, fairly proliferated now but um at the time um that, that was a, a somewhat of a new concept and again 
reference the resource um, push towards uh, Iraq, some units did not have uh, satellite communications capabilities. Um, oh. This this particular unit being one of them. So we had to wait until we uh, until we showed up uh, uh, overhead. Okay. And then, but at that point, then you can talk directly to the guys on the ground. And did they have like a, a, a combat control, somebody on the ground that knew how to employ this or was that, it was just the ODA? Sure. I, I think that, uh, um, in fact, yeah, they, they did have a, uh, a combat controller, uh, with them, uh, for what it's worth, uh, uh, most of the ODAs, uh, all the 18 series folks would, would, uh, come through and they would get at least, uh, what would be called a five line familiarity with, um, with the gunship. Uh, and so even if, uh, the, the combat controller, uh, something happened to, to him or her, um, most uh, of the team members on ODA would still be able to, to at least call in a five line. Um, but, but you're absolutely correct. We, we showed up and, and made contact with the, the air force controller that was attached to that team. And then are they, is, you know, I guess is your, is your crew then, are you, are you just trying to kind of put together a picture of what's going on in terms of the geography, uh, numbers of people involved. And, and if so, whose, whose job is that you're the co-pilot? There's a, there's a pilot. Is there somebody whose, whose job isn't to fly the plane, but is just to kind of try to put that picture together? Yeah. So again, referencing the, the H model, um, what, what we do is the navigator would, would make, um, good two way communication, um, with the controller, verify their location. Um, we would have, uh, two enlisted sensor operators uh, on the airplane. And, you know, of course, you know, the gunship being a, a friendly oriented airplane, that is to say that, that our job is, is, is to protect friendly forces. Uh, we would always start with the identification of the friendly location and, and, in all friendly locations. So not just the, the controller giving us his, his grids, but, you know, if there was a different mission set, you know, where are the blocking positions, uh, identifying all the vehicles, of the convoy, um, so on and so forth. So that, that would be the first order of business, make contact, uh, identify the location. And then, um, the, uh, the sensor operators would, would start to scan out from there. And the scan would be oriented towards, uh, whatever direction the, the combat controller would, would give us. So, you know, I'm, I'm making up a fictitious call out, but he, you know, he could say something to the effect of, you know, a thousand meters to the north. You know, we've got uh, enemy uh, personnel massing behind a, um, you know, a wall, and so, uh, you know, we would we would go out in that direction and we would we would search uh, for for what they were describing. Um, again, in in the older age, we don't have this crew position anymore, but the fire control officer. Um, who is an officer that sits next to the navigator, uh, he or she, uh, would, would help direct some of that traffic with the sensor operators. And, and that individual would, would really tie in the, the holistic picture that both of those sensor operators are looking at. And, and, and that's through a variety of both, um, uh, infrared, uh, thermal imaging, as well as, uh, uh, low light, um, observable technology that we had on, on, on the, uh, the H model. And so what was the, what was the picture on the ground, um, and on this particular day? Yeah. Um, uh, in a word dicey, uh, but you know, the, the, when we showed up, there were a pair of Hornets, uh, overhead. Um, the, the team was in a Southern part of the Valley. They're trying to make their way uh, North to a fire base in the Northern part of the Valley. And, 
and they had uh, intelligence that suggested there were, there were multiple um, ambushes uh, along their route of travel uh, that they could expect. Um, the the Hornet pilots um, uh, had limited stations time in this particular case, um, and they were uh, they're about uh, twenty minutes away from Bingo, so uh, they they could not uh, fully escort um, the, the team up to the fire base uh, with the assumption that, that at some point a fire mission was going to develop. So we showed up overhead, obviously, uh, like I said, identified the, the, the friendly locations and, and began our scans. And, and initially, when they, when they started heading north along that route of travel, uh, it, the picture looked pretty clear. Um, we, we were kind of looking um, out uh, um, at least 1,000 meters uh, based off of how fast they were going. And uh, we could tell that, um, that everything looked quiet. Um, and then all of a sudden... Um, it, it seemed as if, and I'm sure this was the case, I don't have any way to verify it, but um, it seemed as if um, once they uh, started on the move and, and uh, the, the Taliban had, had verified that, um, then everyone started coming out of their houses and, and setting up the ambushes. Um, so about, uh, about a kilometer into uh, the convoy escort, um, we, uh, we picked up... Um, the location of uh, what, what was going to look like a, a pretty impressive L-shaped ambush. And how high, how high are you flying at this point? In this, in this particular case, and granted, you know, the, the airplane, um, the H model could shoot uh, as, as frankly, as low as um, in, in our particular case, as, as low as uh, 4,000 feet AGL. But um, I think on this night, uh, you know, we, uh, we were at about 8,000 AGL and, and that the 8,000 AGL was, was more of a uh, defensive posture than anything else. Of course, as low, you know, as low as we can get is obviously the best because that increases the accuracy of the guns and it increases uh, the, the fidelity of the sensors. But in this case, I, I, if memory serves, we're about 8,000 feet uh, over at the target. And it's, it's nighttime. It, it is. Yeah. That we were exclusively a, a nighttime platform. Uh, in the H model community, obviously some circumstances, uh, extreme circumstances would push us to the night, but, you know, come to find out a, a low, uh, relatively low, uh, slow and, and large airplane uh, can, can make itself, uh, somewhat susceptible to surface area threats. So at this point, when you're 8,000 feet up, uh, it's night, is it, I mean, is it pretty obvious that you're there? Can they hear, can they do, do, do the Taliban guys, the guys that are in play are, in placing this ambush, do they know that you're there? They do. So, uh, about two, yeah, about a couple months into 2001, they started realizing that the distinct sound of, uh, the C-130 overhead, um, a particular engine called the, the T-56, uh, engine that, that, that actually P3s, uh, share, uh, that distinct sound represented a, a, a pretty high degree of danger, uh, for, for the Taliban. Yeah. And so, um, you know, in this night, uh, I have no doubt that, that they heard us. Um, and, uh, but it was interesting that they didn't seem to care. Um, and it was a level of discipline that, that again, uh, I haven't seen since 2007, um, it, with the exception of, of ISIS in, in 2017, um, uh, that the discipline and, and the devotion that, that we saw out of the Taliban that night to, to affect their, their series of ambushes was, was pretty impressive because again, I'll tell you um, every time after that we would show up uh, whether it was again, a troops in contact or a time sensitive target uh, 
once they heard us, um, they would start running uh, away. Okay. So uh, I guess jumping back into your story then, uh, so you start to identify, you know, signs that, that there's a, a, a pretty impressive ambush being laid. Yeah. I think you said about a kilometer from the convoy. Sure. Yeah. So they, um, the, the team had, had, uh, again, started off on, on the uh, convoy going a bit pretty slow, if I recall again, and, and that was a good thing to give us an opportunity to, uh, to take a thorough scan and, the initial uh, ambush that we saw, um, uh, the uh, the IR sensor uh, IR sensor operator picked up first. Um, you know, I say only uh, involved about uh, seven personnel, and uh, um, it's very difficult to to tell off of a of a screen. You know, a person's intent, but but there are certain patterns of life that I think um, are are fairly obvious. Um, but, but again, it, you know, you, you can never be sure. Um, and, and our particular sensors at the time, uh, the fidelity wasn't terribly great. So we couldn't, we couldn't identify um, weapons. Um, we didn't have the, the, the high def sensors that we have now. Um, and so we could, we could kind of tell by, by, you know, someone's gait, you know, how they walk, whether or not they had uh, weapons on them. You can kind of tell by, by the, the pace of their movements, uh, whether or not, um, you know, their, their intent is to, potentially, again, set up an ambush of, of sorts. Um, it was kind of tough for us to at least initially uh, tell that the ambush was was going to occur. But we, again, we, we took what we saw and we, we you know, the navigator uh, painted that picture uh, to the Air Force combat controller. And again, because it was just in that, that, that kind of uh, purgatory zone of not really knowing uh, what, what the true intent was, um, the, uh, the ground force commander, uh, the team lead at the time said, okay, thanks. Uh, let, let's just hold off on executing any fire missions. Uh, collateral damage obviously being a concern uh, anywhere we go. That, because again, the, the, the road led its way straight through the middle of the town. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, you know, as responsible um, uh, employers of cats, we s- certainly don't want to just, uh, you know, destroy the town for the sake of destroying the town. So of course. We, we waited to, to let the tactical situation developed. Um, and, uh, and of course, right in the middle when the convoy was, was right in the middle and right, frankly, next, uh, to the personnel that we had pointed out, um, they just opened fire. Um, and, uh, it was about 30 meters away, um, uh, this, this fire mission. Um, and then, uh, two of the, the individuals, uh, had, had, had tried to kind of, um, again complete the l uh, portion of, of the ambush and, and move to the to the rear of the convoy and uh you know immediately once that happened you know we 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 called out what what the ground force had already been uh, seeing and experiencing uh, for a couple of seconds there and, um and they, they cleared us to fire uh, again understanding that, that we didn't have tweak guns right so uh, we were well within danger close yeah um already uh, and then to execute a danger close fire mission with untweaked guns was, uh, you know, was a, you know, a challenge to, to, to say the least. But the sensor operators that we had, um, you know, are just 100 percent fantastic uh, at their at their job. And they were able to um, bring in the rounds uh, such that, that we were able to, to neutralize the threat, uh, but then obviously uh, prevent any fracture side uh, incidents from occurring. So. 
that first fire mission uh, probably took us about, uh, I would say, about two orbits, about six mu- uh, six minutes to uh, to quell. Um, but uh, but again, uh, suffice it to say, that was not the last fire mission we we're going to have that night. And so, what weapon systems did you use to to engage a target? Yeah, um, thirty meters uh, uh, was was frankly a, a, a perfect distance for the forty millimeter uh, cannon that we had on the airplane. Um, the 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 fifty percent uh, we call it P sub I, so it's it's basically the the percentage of incapacitation um, for that for that particular round uh, was about nineteen feet. Um, so it gave us the opportunity to again bring those guns in um, uh, to a, to a value that that um, what we call a tweak value. Uh, bring those guns in uh, so they are accurate while also preventing um, fratricide. Um, now, once the uh, uh, the Taliban forces started to kind of run away um, from their initial positions. Um, we, we switched to the 105, um, and obviously that was in coordination with with the with the JTAC, uh, the Joint Terminal Air Controller. Mm-hmm. Um, but we started off with the 40 again to to, to minimize collateral and, and prevent uh, fracturecide. And so um, the so that 40 millimeter cannon is there one person on the aircraft that is that is operating it? Yeah, so it, it's a bit, bit of a, a lengthy discussion, but um, on, on how exactly that is that is used, um, especially when fourteen people are involved. Um, but the short uh, short of it is that um, the the one sensor operator uh, is uh, can actually train the gun, right? So what we mean by that is uh, the mission computers will uh, move the gun um, if we are trainable. Um, it'll move the gun to the position in which the sensor operator is looking. So that's one way that the gun is operated. The other way that the gun is operated is that we would load uh, uh, clips of, of 40 millimeter in the gun. Um, of course, there was uh, four rounds of 40 um, uh, per clip. Um, to give you some some context for anyone that's seen the movie uh, Greyhound, uh, the Tom Hanks recent release off Apple TV, the guns that they had on, on that uh, destroyer, those, those are the exact same guns uh, that we would use on the, uh, uh, on the AC-130. And so, uh-huh. yeah, the short of it really is that, that, um, there, there's, there's two people that immediately work the gun. And then there's obviously several other more people that kind of, uh, have oversight on, on how that gun is being employed. Okay. It's, you know, it's, to be, to be honest, just listening to that from, from, you know, 8,000 feet over a mile and a half up, with a weapon system like that, with you know thirty meters, that is danger close. I've, it's it's shocking to me, um, really, the precision that you can have from that from that elevation, um, from that altitude. Excuse me. So you said that there were there were further fire missions. Uh, you know, was this was it, how how far were you meant to be? How far did this convoy have to go with you in support? If memory serves, I think it was about a, a 10 mile journey, uh, maybe 10 to, to 15 miles to get from the southern part of the valley to, to the northern part of the valley. This first fire mission was was at the southern part, just just at the edge um, of, of the town that they were passing through. Um, you know, when we uh, we we finished that fire mission, uh, the, the team obviously did a, a check to make sure everything was everything was good on their end we uh we proceeded um 
obviously north of the route. Uh, I had the sensor operators take a look uh, uh, northern edge of that that route um, again along both the east and west uh, portions of, of the of the road, and uh, you know an interesting phenomenon occurs. Uh, you know once once a gunship starts shooting uh, in a town, um, you know uh, generally speaking, non-combatants will 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 go into a building, and and at least in 2007, the combatants would come out of buildings. Um, and so it, you know, it was a bit of a, a inflection point, um, at least for this particular mission that, that we knew that, um, based off the pattern of life that we were seeing, uh, through the rest of the town that, that, uh, folks that were, uh, that were outside and, and, and kind of the, uh, there's a term called bounding overwatch. Um, you know, it's, it's a, a tactical maneuver that, that, um, that the Taliban, uh, would, would often employ as they're moving from point to point. That kind of started to reveal itself um, towards the center part of the town, and so um, you know we, we we called that in uh, to to the JTAC, and um, again with you know with the uh, intent to to minimize um, uh, civilian casualties and any collateral damage, um, you know the the ground force commander elected to to, to hold off on a, on a fire mission, um, and obviously rightfully so. Uh, on a fire mission in the center of the town where, you know, there, there's a school, there's a mosque, right? These are all, um, you know, key no strike um, uh, buildings that, that we obviously want to protect. Um, so they proceeded north um, at, again, a pretty slow pace and uh, almost the exact same thing um, occurred where, you know, they, they got within, in this particular case, I think uh, about 300 meters um of uh of what ended up being the the second ambush uh, location but in this case uh there was about uh, 15 folks so the, the first fire mission i think was about seven folks uh setting up um and then i i uh if memory serves that the second was about 15 folks so obviously they're upping the ante a little bit uh we called it in and and you know again literally the exact same thing happened um where um you had uh um, in this case, the the ambush, was, you had personnel on both sides of the road, um, so the, the the convoy was caught in in a literal uh, um, crossfire. Um, in this case, uh, we, you know, when we got when we communicated that uh, to the JTAC and, and he gave us the clearance to fire, um, because uh, it, it was on both sides of the road, um, we, we elected to employ. Uh, both guns again, and, and the ground force commander uh, accepted that risk. Um, th- this fire mission again was was about uh, thirty five to forty meters on both sides that they, they were getting engaged. At. When you say both guns, you mean the forty millimeter and the one hundred five? That's correct. Yep. Oh, wow. Yep. So, um, you know, I've had a couple of whiskey drinks since two thousand seven, so I I, I I can't remember if the forty was on the 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 west and the the 105 was i think the 105 was on the east side of the road okay um but uh we, we engaged what was called dta dual target attack so we used both guns at the same time um to to engage both sides of the road um th- there's a particular round um uh, called the the we call the proximity fuse round um that can determine um when it's about 15 feet off the ground and it'll actually detonate uh, this is the 105 by the way Mm-hmm. um it'll detonate and and uh, the round is actually scored so 
So there's about you know 14,000 uh, pieces of, once it's detonated, 14,000 pieces of, of steel that are about 22 caliber size um, pieces of steel that, that they fragment uh, kind of outward uh, at, again, 15 feet. Well, the, the, you know, the, the byproduct of that is it's, it's, it's a, a good weapon uh, for engaging personnel, maybe not the best weapon for engaging vehicles, right? Um, because of the, the size of, of that steel, uh, we'll, we'll generally, um, it'll just basically bounce off of um, uh, even APCs, uh, armored personnel carriers. Um, so it, for us, for employing the 105, it, it was the perfect uh, uh, 105 munition to use um, because, you know, we could relatively ensure that the, the ground force inside the vehicles uh, were going to be safe, but the personnel uh, next to the vehicles engaging uh, the team with RPGs and, and, and PKMs, um, we would be able to engage them. And so so that was our risk mitigation for that particular fire mission was, was to use the prox round of the 105. Um, and after about... Uh, that took a while. Uh, again, more personnel um, uh, took a while for us to, to finally uh, quell that uh, that engagement. I, I think that that engagement lasted about, if I recall, about uh, twelve to fifteen minutes. It, it was several orbits um, before we finally neutralized all those threats. Okay, and was that the was that the last serious one of uh, of 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 this particular mission? Uh, you know, unfortunately not, uh, for the ground team. Um, I, I think we all kind of expected it would be based off of, um, the, the casualties that, that the Taliban took, uh, that night. But as the team was exiting the town, um, probably about, uh, two to 300 meters before they, they, they exited the town proper. Um, there was another, uh, uh smaller scale, uh, ambush, um, I think again on the order of about seven to ten personnel, uh, very similar to the very first one, um, and again very similar um, engagement distance. It was, this particular one, I think, it was about forty-five to fifty meters away. They were in a kalat, which is a, um, a term for a, a fortress mm-hmm. um, that was kind of broken down um, and dilapidated. Uh, but they were engaging from this this kalat uh, again, the, the the convoy, and and again, um, clearest to fire. Um, uh, because uh, both guns were tweaked in and because the, the 105 that night was was shooting uh, pretty tight, um, we uh, ended up doing a dual target attack on that one location with both the, the 40 and the 105 um, to, to, again, uh, neutralize those personnel. And unfortunately, you know, after the, the, the third fire mission, uh, you know, thankfully that, that was the last one and, and we escorted the, the, the convoy um to to their fire base up north uh, with fortunately no no casualties and and no major damage to equipment and so how much time in total were you in the air you know i'd have to say about about two and a half hours um we uh we kind of joked after the sortie that it was a a, you know we called it a fighter sortie that that's um obviously fighters are uh, uh more than capable of flying longer than that but um yeah, we kind of joked around because prior to that point, um, most of our sorties were, were eight plus hours long. Um, and that's just due, due mainly to the, the travel time um, across the country, you know, from our base um, up north to, to Kandahar, where most of the fighting was occurring. It, it was at least an hour drive. And then, of course, you know, you want to provide um, a, a high degree of loiter time. So after, you know, 
two uh, tankers, you know, we would go up and get gas midway through the, the sortie from a KC-135. Uh, you know, you come back and it was about, you know, eight, nine or 10 hours. This particular night, because of the proximity to, to our, our, uh, our home base um, and, uh, and just how, how quickly uh, all three of those fire missions both developed and then were, were uh, quieted, uh, it was only about two and a half hours. So, you know, you talked about both these weapon systems, the 40 millimeter and the 105. What's it like? Um, I, I honestly can't, can't imagine what it's like, but what's it, what effect does it have on the aircraft when you fire the 105? Do you have to position it in a certain way to be able to continue to fly it? I mean, it just seems, it's almost shocking to me that you can put such a large gun on a fixed wing aircraft like that. Yeah, I mean it, it's it's shocking the first time uh, you shoot it, and, and the, the the back end of the airplane uh, makes a pretty significant kick. Um, yeah. the, the recoil it's it is it is a army um, uh, you know one hundred five howitzer, so the recoil is just as the same um, as any uh, artillery um, individual can tell you. Um, you know, it's about a fifty not, or about a fifty inch recoil coming out of that one hundred five, and so. As a result of that, the, the airplane kicks uh, significantly. You know, the, the engineers um, at Warner Robins, every time we uh, put the airplane in, into what we call depot, um, where uh, the airplanes uh, strip down pretty good, they'll, they'll take a look at the, um, the, the fatigue uh, in, the, in the ribs and the spars of the airplane just to make sure that, that everything's fine. And, um, you know, knock on wood, we, we certainly haven't had any uh, metal fatigue issues that, that have affected safety. Um, but, but it is a jolting experience. Uh, there's, there's no doubt about that. You know, um, in the army where we, we talk a lot about kind of shifting, uh, our focus from the stability operations, counterinsurgency that dominated for, you know, the better part of almost two decades now to preparing for this era of great power competition and being ready for large scale combat operations. Um, and that's going to entail, you know, sort of different expectations. Um, we recently uh, recorded and released an episode of the Spear uh, with a, an army officer who who described a mission that he said wasn't really successful. And he said, it's really hard to, to talk about. And that we in the army don't like talking about failures, tactical failures against the Taliban because we seemingly have so many advantages um, you know, uh, when you, when you kind of sort of stack up technologically, resource wise, uh, what have you. Um, but there were some of those failures and we don't necessarily talk about them. It kind of strikes me that from an, from, a from an aviation perspective, you know, if you ask, if you ask most ground force personnel, most army soldiers, Marines, um, they'd say that CAS always worked. It was always effective. You needed them. Once they got on station, they were, they, they did the job. Um, is there a sense, is there a similar sense in maybe in the air force and particularly in special operations aviation that, that, that there's a shift now and that maybe there are some lasting effects of, you know, of, of, you know, I don't, I don't want to misstate it or overstate it, but of having so much success over the past almost two decades. Yeah. I, I, I think you're from an air power standpoint, um, you know, I won't get too much into, to, you know, my, my uh, land and sea domain uh, friends and their observations, but from an air power standpoint, you know, we, we were uh, as successful as, as I think any, anyone can expect um, uh, in both uh, Afghanistan and, and Iraq. And, and the success of that 
uh, was bred primarily through the, the operating environment. Again, from an air domain standpoint, um, it was a relatively benign environment um, for us. Uh, it was what, what most would call a permissive environment, again, from the air domain standpoint. Mm-hmm. As we pivot to great power competition and, and as we kind of seek to um, to meet the needs of, uh, of the new national defense strategy, um, th- that requires a you know what, what a lot of people will call a paradigm shift. Um, and I, I align that paradigm shift uh, along two lines of effort. Uh, one would be a technical one. So you know as as we take a look at the AC130J, you know h- how do we and we're still having conversations today as, as a community. You know, how, how do we build an airplane um, uh, to where we can uh, support the, the broader joint force um, from a tactical standpoint? You know, do, does that airplane look like what we talked about, the, the, the DARPA uh, Gremlins program? Or does it look like a, a completely austere airplane that, that you can, um, you know, support uh, brush fire wars as, as uh, you know, uh, President Eisenhower would, would call them? Mm-hmm. Uh, that are frankly on the fringe of, of great power competition. We're still having these conversations. Um, but I would tell you that the interesting part about um, our success in, in Afghanistan is not necessarily the, the technical, uh, you know, uh, um, inability to, to um, flex to a, a greater power competition. I, you know, I think we're, we're going to slowly work our way through that. But you know, come to find out 19 years of, of focusing on just the mission and a concept called force employment, it, it came at, at our development. And again, that development is, you know, what I, you know, is along two lines for me, at least you know, the technical and cultural side. On the cultural side, um, you know, what, what we found is um, all that time, those 14 deployments that, that I, that I spent, um, which, by the way, they're they really exciting. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know if I, uh, I, I probably downplayed um, the excitement of, of that mission a little mm-hmm. bit earlier um, because it, it really was exciting. And I could tell you the call sign of every special operations JTAC in Afghanistan at the time. I mean, I could, I could uh, tell you anything about um, pretty much any weapon system uh, in theater at the time. And that was great. And for a young guy, um, it, it was really exciting uh, to to be fully immersed in this concept called called force employment, um, which which again, um, it, it's it's all about getting the mission accomplished. Uh, but it came at the cost of of developing our, our equipment and our people. And and what I mean by developing our our, our people, um, concepts called accountability and, and discipline, which you know, I mean that's that's basically leadership. Um, you know, our, our senior officers didn't have an opportunity uh, because, you know, we were deployed all the time and because we were so immersed in, in mission accomplishment, they didn't have, a t- you know, an opportunity in time to, to really work those, um, you know, those fundamental aspects of leadership, um, you know, into our calculus. And so that that had a, uh, an effect on, on order and discipline, um, you know, and, and order and discipline is is. Uh, um, is a concept that I, I think everyone kind of knows, but um, it, it it has effects on on mission accomplishment as well, right? So when you look at uh, the concept of mission command, you, you look at risk management. Um, you know, you can't have those without order and discipline. And and there's a there's a report uh, that the um, U.S. Special Operations Command uh, commissioned 
uh, called the, the Comprehensive Review, where we, we looked um, as a as a combatant command uh, at, at some of the, the misconduct uh, that occurred um, that, that probably had also effect uh, on tactical execution. Um, and it all came back to an imbalance between a, a concept between uh, called force employment and, and force development. Um, and, and air power, you know, we, we honestly, uh, you know, we weren't immune from those effects either. Um, you know, when I, when I look at, uh, some of the, some of the shenanigans that we'd have in the squatter, I sure they were fun, man. I, I absolutely loved them as a young guy, but I look back now, now that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm old and, and irrelevant and decrepit. Uh, and I, I, maybe I've, I've learned a lesson or two. Uh, I look back and, and all those deployments came, it came at the cost of, of my development. And so, uh, you know, as we kind of pivot, um, and this, I think this is going to be a, a challenge, uh, not necessarily for old guys like me, but, but for younger guys, uh, as we pivot uh, to, to this concept called great power competition, um, I, I think it's going to be important for us to, to, to maintain that balance between development and employment. Um, and again, both on a, uh, on a technical side and, and a cultural side, and, and hopefully we can, we can get back to these concepts, you know, like accountability and, and discipline, um, which, which undermine or excuse me, underpin, uh, uh, mission command and, and operational risk management. Hopefully we can kind of get back to, um, uh, to, to a varsity level of those, those two concepts. And, you know, the, 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 problem that you just described that sort of arose out of this imbalance between um, what you call force employment and force development. If that problem is to be solved, and, and I assume steps are already being taken to do that and have been taken uh, to do that, but do you do you see the the solution being an institutional one, you know, an Air Force, a service one, or even a, a broader DOD one, a joint force solution? Or is it going to be incumbent on leaders, your, your squadron commander at your level and below to really sort of um, recalibrate that? Yeah, I, I think the answer is both, uh, to be honest with you. It, you know, there's a systemic and a structural uh, element to this, uh, which is, you know, kind of the first part of what you're hitting on. Um, uh, General Brown, uh, uh, the chief staff of the Air Force mentioned that he, he's, he's looking at uh, potentially a different way in which we um, present our forces. And, and um, again, he's, he's just re-looking it uh, within Within AFSOC, uh, we're embarking on on a, a force generation model um, that uh, really has four main phases to it, um, which takes a very deliberate approach to developing a force before you employ it, not employing a, a force and, and developing it, you know, developing it at the same time. Um, and so AFSOC has, has certainly gone down that that road, and even the squadron, you know, even though we've been uh, committed to to a counterviolent extremist fight. For, for better part of 19 years now, we've been almost constantly deployed. Um, you know, w- internal to the 16th SOS, you know, my squadron is we, we've done our own force generation on a flight level, right? So, you know, you have you know, different echelons or squadron and then flight. Um, and so a squadron about 150 people, we've got 30 people across five flights. Um, and so we, we, we've embarked on the structural side of it, right? The systemic, you know, how, how do you, present forces and, you know, you know, how do you develop them before you employ them? Right. But you're right. I mean, the, the second part of this is the squishy side, right. Um, as, as leaders, you know, day-to-day interaction. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure I won't get into the time frame of when I heard this, but 
you know, I, I remember being in the squadron hearing, Hey, you know, so-and-so, um, you know, had, uh, and I won't even say the misconduct, but so-and-so uh, had a, a misconduct issue, uh, but he's the only, you know, he's the only crew position that we can deploy and we got to deploy him here in a couple, couple weeks. And, and we overlooked that. Um, so we can get this individual out the door and, and, um, and into theater to, to fight. Um, and, you know, I, I think in that one particular case, uh, you know, is, you know, is that going to bring the squadron to its knees? Probably not. But, but over the course of time that, that has, um, a, a pretty uh, adverse effect on, on order and discipline. And so it's incumbent upon, you know, leaders, especially at, at the unit level, you know, at the squadron battalion level and below. So for, for the army, you know, you know, it would be company command, the, the uh, equivalent for us would be, would be flight command to, to return back to, to again, accountability and discipline. I'll tell you, discipline, uh, became a, a four letter word for the longest time. Um, because, you know, mainly, uh, we, we had to get people out the door, but, but also if, if, if we, uh, you know, we held you accountable for something, you know, it, it, it basically meant career death. Um, what would happen is, um, you know, we'd, we'd hold you accountable for some sort of misconduct or, you know, maybe poor performance in the airplane on a singular event. And we would just kind of stick you in a broom closet uh, somewhere in some other agency where you'd never fly again and you'd never be in the squadron again. And, and I think, you know, our airmen saw that and, and they never wanted to be held accountable for anything ever again because they knew it meant certain death. And, and so, you know, I think we as leaders, we need to look at, uh, you know, what I call a three-step process when something happens, accountability, uh, discipline, and rehabilitation. Um, accountability is re really just a way to improve, uh, whether it's in the air or on the ground. So, you know, if, if you mess up a landing or, or you know, you, you, you mess up a, a, a fire mission, you know, maybe the, you know, your, your tweak was, was maybe off by a couple mills. Um, hey, look, we're going to hold you accountable, but it's not because we hate you. It's because we want you to see, you know, you get better. Um, you know, I, Again, I'm showing my age here when I when I give this quote, uh, but uh, but a guy by the name of Joe Dumars, he's you know Detroit Pistons, <laughs> uh, you know no you know probably about a, a hundred years ago uh, at this point, but uh, you know he's he's a Hall of Famer and a two-time World Champion. Um, he's got a really great quote out there, um, and and the quote is: "On good teams, coaches will hold players accountable. On great teams, players will hold players accountable." And, and at least on the gunship, it really is a team sport, whether you're talking eight uh, or 14 people. Um, it's important that, that we hold ourselves accountable, uh, both on the air and, and in the ground, um, to get after that, that squishy side of leadership that you're referencing. You know, we, we talked about the systemic, force generation, uh, structural elements of, of preparing for great power competition. But, man, when it comes to, to implementing discipline, um, it's a day-to-day -day interaction, and I think it's all the the, the, the vignettes that I, I just described there on, on the squishy side. Yeah, you know, I think it's um it's it's such a you, you did such a great job of kind of connecting, um, I, I, what has become now almost a twenty-year war effort with effects that are going to be dealt with by a lot of you know a lot of a lot of our listeners, for instance, who are young men and women, young leaders in uniform who who maybe, you know, joined the military, whatever service, you know, well after the surge in Iraq, well after the surge in Afghanistan, who weren't there to kind of experience it, to see uh, those sort of cultural changes, um, but are going to have to be part of the the solution to some of them going forward. 
I think that's a great lesson. Um, it's a it's a it's a great note to to end on. So. I just want to thank you again for for joining the Spear. It's a fantastic story. Like I said, I, I could have gone on and on asking questions about the C130 because I think it's just such a fascinating platform. But I really appreciate you sharing the story and um, and 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 frankly some of the, some of the wisdom you've accrued from uh, from from your time in, in in service. Yeah, you got it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.